Hello, and welcome to Displaced. I'm Grant Gordon. Hi, I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And today, we are actually taking a look back at some of the episodes that we've ran in season one as we wrap this up and come back in two months with new episodes. There are a series of episodes that we were particularly proud of that featured uh, female executives in the humanitarian and development sector. And to tell us a little bit more about this and contextualize it, we've got Catherine Long on with us today, who is a development practitioner, journalist extraordinaire, and has been helping out with Displaced on the sidelines. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So I re- I'm especially excited to be talking about this today because for people who are not working in development, I think there's a perception that the development sector doesn't need to grapple with its demons. It doesn't need to grapple with gender inequality. Um, and is, that think, really, is that really true? No, it's not true at all. You know, you look at it, you, we see 75% of people working in the sector are women, but only 44% of the people working in leadership positions are women. And that's, you know, going from 75 to 44, that's an attrition rate that's in alignment with the tech sector. That's that's like Silicon Valley right there. Yeah, I mean, when we were uh, thinking about IRC's mission and constitution when I first arrived, we looked at this issue and felt we had a, a problem in two respects. One, all the outcomes that we work on, health, education, safety, show huge inequalities by gender. But then, as you say, even though we've got quite a lot of people working in the IRC who are women, that are majority, um, there are there's a big weakness in terms of women in leadership positions, particularly closer to the field. So if you take the country directors leading our programs, it is far more male than female. Something else I think it's important to highlight is that, you know, the, t- the development sector has has helped bring about huge gains for women around the world. You know, the rate of maternal mortality has declined by half over the past 25, 20 years. But as we've been seeing these huge gains in some sectors, uh, there are in other sectors, there's sort of a decreasing marginal gains in terms of women's empowerment, right? And it's pretty easy to have somebody start working. But when you are trying to address um, salary inequalities or you're trying to address the fact that women work fewer hours than men, it's really hard to to bridge that gap. And um, the funding levels across the sector are, are just not where they need to be in order to make that happen for women. It's really interesting and speaks to many of both the structural changes that we need to see in the policies that are shaping uh, the way that these institutions are actually kind of comprised and profiled, as well as all the way down into some of the programming that you're talking about, Ravi. Which brings us to some of the interesting interviews that we were able to do um, over the arc of this past season. So would love to hear a little bit more about that. Across the interviews, one of the themes that, that we've been exploring most often is the theme of innovation. So we've had some really exciting guests who are at the top of the development field come on and talk to us about how they innovate within their organizations, uh, some of the biggest organizations in the sector of international development and humanitarian aid. You know, we've had Kanika Ball, who's the CEO of Evidence Action. She was describing how her organization is able to incubate and prototype and evaluate these really innovative development interventions to fight poverty. Um, We've had Reshma Sojani who is the CEO of the national nonprofit Girls Who Code. And she was talking about how in order for her organization to succeed, they need to do a lot of incremental evaluations of their failures at the frontier. We also talked to DFID economist Rachel Glenerster, who is a huge proponent of busting development myths by using randomized controlled trials. She was able to talk to us about why investment in women's education is the most effective investment in the world or not. You know, I mean, I think that's something that that we see thrown around a lot. But according to her research, maybe that's not necessarily true. We were also able to speak with Alex Zwane, 
who is heading up the Global Innovation Fund, which is a really innovative venture trying to bridge the gap between venture capital and philanthropy. Great. Well, so do check those out. We've also got lots more detail in our show notes, which Catherine's prepared. So check those out too. You can see those at www.rescue.org slash displaced. And without further ado, here's today's show. I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy, and this is Displaced, a podcast about the global refugee crisis. And it's a partnership between Vox Media and the International Rescue Committee, where Grant and I work. Today on the show, we have Anne May Chang. Anne May Chang is a leading advocate for social innovation and the author of a new book called Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Social Good. Anne May was the chief innovation officer at USAID and was the first executive director of the US Global Development Lab. Before she came to the social sector, she worked in Silicon Valley at Google and elsewhere. And one of the reasons that I am excited to talk to Anne May Chang is because she is one of the people who's actually worked in both this space that has given birth to the kind of modern conception of what innovation is and has worked towards implementing that in the development and humanitarian space. So here's our conversation with Anne May Chang. Anne May Chang, welcome to Displaced. Great to have you on the on the show. Thank you so much for having me. You've had an incredible career, incredibly diverse. You've spent 20 years in tech. You've worked at Google. You've worked in the heart of government. You've run innovation at a, a big NGO. And I was reading something about how you came to a kind of career crossroads and you thought to yourself, I could go and run one of those big NGOs, but actually um, that won't necessarily achieve the kind of impact that you really, really dream of having. And that was the inspiration behind writing this book. Can you just give us an indication of the kind of frustration you, you felt at that point? Yeah, absolutely. And I have to go back a little bit. So when I left Silicon Valley about seven years ago and decided to spend the second half of my career in global development, you know, I knew I had a lot to learn. But I had come from this environment in Silicon Valley where, you know, it was very creative. People were thinking really big, um, very experimental. We took risks all the time and we were constantly innovating. And I got into global development and you know, I was trying to, you know, this is how I was used to working. And I realized things worked a little bit differently. Um, and as I sort of peeled away the layers to try to understand why that was, it wasn't that people didn't want to innovate or it wasn't that people didn't have great ideas. But I think there's a bunch of things in the structure of the ecosystem uh, that make it very difficult for people to take risks, to iterate, to be adaptive, uh, and, and to really pursue big dreams. And so uh, as I learned more and more about this, what I found is a lot of that was due to the way funding works, that funding, the, the way a lot of the big grants for global development work, which is what drives a lot of the activity, is that you have to come up with what I think of as a grand master plan. This is, you know, we're going to figure out, spend some months or years figuring out exactly what we're going to do, put together a plan, and then go execute on that plan for three or five years. And, you know, in this world where things are so dynamic, and, you know, both in the conditions we work in, as well as the technologies and world that we live in, it's like that's just not a realistic way to get things done. Um, and so when I looked at the way that a lot of NGOs operate, um, they're really stuck in this cycle where they're they're basically on well, what I call the grant treadmill where they have their aspirations of what they want to do. But really, you know, what what they end up having to do is apply for grants, you know, try to come up with their plans that sound better than other people's plans and then execute on those grants as faithfully as possible. Um, and I 
you know, took a hard look when I left USAID and said, do I want to do that? And I thought, you know, I think what I want to do first is give my best shot at trying to ch- shake up that system a little bit. I, I feel like I'm on the grant treadmill as well. <laughs> you bad, are the grant treadmill. Yeah, bad, bad joke. Bad dad joke. Um, so a lot of that really resonates with me because, and, and we talk about on this podcast, that the financial incentives structure a lot of the way that global development works. And if you're on the donor side, you potentially get to change that. If you're not on the donor side, this is actually really hard to do. So one of the things, as, as we've talked about, as we talk about lean impact in this methodology that I'm curious about is like, what are the concrete changes that people who face those constraints can make in their institutions? What should people at NGOs who actually want to be more adaptive but are still operating in this landscape, what what can they change? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think of the problem as probably 80% a funder problem and 20% an NGO problem, meaning that the funders have the predominant responsibility to really create an environment where innovation is more possible. But NGOs you know, don't have 0% of the responsibility. There are things NGOs can do. And part of it is let's not let perfect be the enemy of the good, right? So, you know, certainly the easiest thing for NGOs to do, and many of them are doing it today, is to find, carve out like spaces for innovation, right? By seeking, you know, more unrestricted funding, more flexible funding from, you know, either philanthropists or more innovative funders and so forth. And, and we're seeing like almost all organizations create some space for that. Um, but beyond that, what I think is, you know, we're at a point where we've seen that happen. There's limits to what you can do in that space. Uh, I want to see it move into the mainstream. And so there's a number of things I think we can do even in the structure of these large grants. Like if you're applying for a $50 million grant, you know, we usually will carve out, you know, two, three, four percent for M&E. Why not also carve out two, three, four percent, five percent for innovation? You know, if you're supposed to reach 100,000 people, what if you say, we'll reach five percent less than that? for sure, and with the program that we've predefined, but we're going to spend that 5% instead on taking some risks and, and experimenting with some things and iterating and trying to improve things so that if we can make even the, the other 95%, even 10% better, like that's going to more than pay for itself. And so, you know, even in the structure of a large grant, I think we can carve out either, you know, an inception phase where we spend a little time up front trying a few things before we just dive right in, or kind of an innovation window, I call it, um, where you spend some time throughout the process really continuing to look at how we can improve stuff while spending the majority of your time really, you know, executing on what you've committed to. But you presumably come across lots of examples of NGOs and others doing incredibly innovative work despite the, uh, the constraints of the funding environment. How are they doing it? I mean, I think a lot of what I've seen that they're doing it is, is there's the number of ways that it's happening. One is as with any industry, it's the small startups, social entrepreneurs who are often leading the charge because they have just a lot more flexibility. They can take a lot more risk because they're smaller. Um, that's true in Silicon Valley. I think it's true in global development as well. But I'm seeing almost all the large NGOs do this too. They're creating labs like the Airbell um, Center. And uh, and they're doing so by carving out some space either from their own unrestricted funding, they're raising special funding from more forward-thinking um, philanthropists or donors, um, and they're carving out that space to to experiment and to come up with some amazing innovations as a part of that. And, and your book is called um, Lean Impact, and you've you've lent sorry another bad joke heavily on um, the lean startup methodology, which was a, a book several years ago. That's almost now a movement, if you like, rather than just a, a pure management book. Can you just give us a bit of background to the term 
lean startup and also how it differs from some of the other terms that people uh, use in this space like agile or design thinking. Yeah, absolutely. So The Lean Startup was a book written by Eric Ries uh, several years back that I think is one of the books that's really captured the process of innovation that has driven this incredible pace of progress in Silicon Valley. Um, and it, at the core of The Lean Startup is really this idea of like the build, measure, learn feedback loop. It's, it's essentially, if you think of The Lean Startup, it's there's no rocket science to it. It's essentially the scientific method, but done um, in a very entrepreneurial way. And so build, measure, learn feedback loop essentially says if you have a solution and you're working under conditions of great uncertainty, which we are when we're starting a tech startup company and trying to create something no one's created before, or when you're working in global development humanitarian aid and you're working in very um, uncertain spaces with intractable problems that haven't been solved, that you need to test your solution, right? And so how do you do that? You know, you could do it in the traditional global development way where you might spend, you know, months or years running RCTs, or you could try to find ways to run what Eric would call a MVP or a minimum viable product. And so the idea is to come up with a hypothesis. What do you think your solution is going to produce? Um, build an MVP on an experiment to test it, measure the results of that. And, and, and we're talking about these experiments, small experiments, you know, maybe five, 10, 100 people, not thousands of people, you know, measure to see what happened and then learn based on that learn to either adapt your solution slightly, you know, recognize that it is working and double down and do more or see that you might need to take a completely different path and pivot. Um, and so that cycle is the, the sort of at the core of Lean Startup. And what's most important is how fast you can iterate through that cycle. Um, it's the, the, if you're learning and iterating on the order of months or years, you're going to have a you know, much slower pace of progress in your innovation than if you're able to reduce that to like hours or days. So this is actually one of the areas where I think um, discussion around innova uh, innovation um, is almost a bit contradictory. So I think there's a sense that like innovation is about taking risk. It's about like leaning into that and, uh, you know, being willing to do that. Whereas when you describe the process, right, build, measure, learn, that to me is actually about de-risking, right? Like it's like much more about saying rather than investing a lot in something that we're a little bit more unsure of, we're going to spend a smaller amount to test that out, learn. And so we're reducing the potential loss. And so I actually would love to hear how you – whether you think that like the way that risk is talked about in innovation is appropriate or kind of gets it wrong because it's, it's a place where I think it becomes a little contradictory. Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a great way to frame it that, you know, innovation has become such a buzzword these days. Everyone's talking about innovation no matter what they're doing. And I think it's become very misunderstood. Mm -hmm. um, people think of innovation as a big idea, taking the big risk, sort of, you know, I'm going to have an apple fall on my head and it's going to change everything tomorrow. Um, and the reality is that's not my experience of how innovation works. Yeah, you, I wish that happened. If uh, apples yeah, exactly. fall on me, like, great, great ideas. Um, it doesn't happen that often. I mean, you occasionally just, it just happens. just dare us to throw apples at you. <laughs> <laughs> if it creates good ideas, I'm in. <laughs> but if you think of some of the companies we consider the most innovative on the planet, Google didn't invent search. Facebook didn't invent social networking, right? And so why did they become head and shoulders above their competitors? It's because they build, measured, learned, and iterated and improved on what they're doing much faster than their competitors, right? You know, Google and Facebook are running hundreds of experiments every day on their sites to try and improve what they're doing. And we may not see those incremental improvements, but their algorithms are getting better, their user interface is getting better, their feature sets are getting better. And that's actually the 
blood, sweat, and tears that goes into innovation. That isn't the glamorized view that we think I have on the outside, but is really what is needed and is the reality of how innovation gets driven. Uh, and with the sort of build, measure, learn approach, and you, you, you mentioned, for instance, doing quick tests at with 50 or 100 people, presumably at that level, you can understand whether the product or service is desirable, whether it's feasible. You can't necessarily work out whether it's actually changed behaviour decisively because you've not got a large enough sample size. So at some point, you do then have to do the kind of big RCT that you mentioned um, before. Yeah, um, I, th- I think that's a great question. So when the reason that you want to, there's a number of reasons that I think it's important to start small when you're experimenting. First of all, um, it's a lot faster and, and quicker when you experiment with five or 10 or 50 or 100 people rather than if you're trying to roll something out to hundreds or thousands of people. Um, and so you can get information much more quickly. And it's it's a tiered approach, right, that you start out before you go to 10,000 people where you can have a sufficient sample size to run an RCT, you want to try it with a few people because you're probably going to learn something that will lead you to be more likely to succeed when you get to the 10,000 people. And so it's not that you shouldn't run an RCT. Absolutely, an RCT or something like it is a gold standard to get rigorous evidence to be sure it works. But we don't need to be 100% sure in the beginning. We start at 0%. We shouldn't go all the way to 100. Let's like be 50% sure it's working. And then, you know, if we are 50% sure it's working with 50 people, then let's go to 500 people. Then let's go to 10,000 people. And so the idea is to eliminate waste by learning, de-risking things, as Grant put it. Um, and, you know, and we can de-risk things more quickly and cheaply by doing so with fewer people and then double down over time as we get gain confidence that we're on the right track. When you look back at your past few years of experience in the innovation sector and global development, what are some of the successes that you think people should actually anchor on? Like if they want to see what good innovation is, what do you what comes to mind? Well, one of the areas that I, I've been very excited about and we worked on during the time I was at USAID is um, th- this kind of ecosystem around pay-as-you-go off-grid home solar systems, right, that – you know, past people who lived in rural areas who were poor had had to burn kerosene in order to read at night and and heat up their homes and so forth. And you know, it was expensive. It was polluting. You know, it wasn't a great. It was also dangerous. So it wasn't a good good solution. And now we you know we many years ago invented solar lighting. It was available. It was just too expensive for people to purchase mm-hmm. um, because they didn't have the savings to make the upfront pay for the upfront costs of a home solar system. And so, you know, this was a business model innovation where a number of different companies came together and and experimented with this idea of using mobile money, which had taken off in, in East Africa, and allowed families to be able to pay off their home solar system for just a few cents a day. And it, it enabled them, just like you or I might buy a car or a house and, you know, have a mortgage or a loan to do so, it enabled them to have the uh, ability financially to afford it. And so they were paying less than often they might pay for kerosene and now able to get clean, reliable, and safe you know, electricity in their home to light their homes, to um, charge their mobile phones, and even maybe to watch TV. And so it's an innovation that's been exciting because it's really been transformative for people, but it's also had a business model because people are paying for the service so that it can really scale. And you're seeing now multiple different companies really getting to hundreds of thousands of people with this new solution. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how your typical grant funding model of a charity makes it very difficult to innovate and certainly to scale, whereas actually this model, because it's about the end customer paying, 
uh, it has a totally different set of incentives and it does allow scaling to happen. Do you find that this fee-for-service pay-as-you-go model being applicable in other areas? Are we seeing other goods being uh, delivered in that way? Like yeah. water, for instance. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that pay-as-you-go is, is, is definitely being rolled out to other types of products. You know, like I said, now, now they're adding televisions. I think they have cook stoves. They have a lot of different appliances that they're sort of adding. I know we had a refrigeration prize that we ran at USAID. So it is a mechanism that allows people to pay for things. I should also say, though, in the global development sphere, um, there are many, many things that people need where a private sector business model, a market-driven business model is not appropriate, you know, especially for basic services. You know, it, a lot of times government is really the appropriate provider at scale, not the private sector. It's just pe- things people are not going to be able to necessarily pay for or not going to be willing to pay for. And so um, the private sector business model is certainly not the only path to scale. Um, but what's what's interesting, what you said about the grant funding is that um, one of the companies that we, we work closely with was Off-Grid Electric was actually grant funded by USAID initially through the lab, through something we call Development Innovation Ventures. And, and with Development Innovation Ventures, we tried to create a new way of thinking about grant funding, which isn't the sort of grand master plan, you know, execute to this plan, but rather a tiered funding model that we um, modeled after how venture capital works. So we'll, we can by placing smaller bets, we can place a lot more of them. So we place lots of small bets on potential, you know, breakthrough solutions, um, such as off-grid electric in the early days. And then when they were successful, then we could double down. And off-grid electric was actually the first or- organization that we gave all three tiers of funding, first at about 100000 then about um, a million, and then about $5 million. Um, as they were successful, we were able to tier up. And then what's even more exciting is that over time, as they proved their success, we de risk their solution, the private sector came in and they've raised over $100 million now in private debt and equity. I want to pull on one of the strings that you were talking about there, which is uh, oftentimes the state is needs to step in for services. And it speaks to, I think, one of the lineages of innovation coming out of Silicon Valley, which is that's a space that uh, innovation is being done in the private sector. It doesn't, it's not a space right now, and, and we can talk about this more, uh, where governance and policymaking and regulation are really present. And it's obviously a lot of innovation that's actually moving against that. Whereas a lot of global development, I think fundamentally is about enhancing state capacity. And so I'm curious to get your thoughts on how that lineage of innovation actually clashes with some of the goals of global development. I'm not sure. What, what do you mean by clash? So... I guess one question is, is there a lot of innovation going on in governance or state capacity building? Because I think of a lot of the process coming out of a set of narrowly defined kind of spaces that are market driven and that may not actually apply to kind of like state building, you know, increasing tax capacity, increasing basic service capacity, those types of processes that I think have actually been more traditionally at the heart of, you know, global development with a capital G and a capital D, like very large grants to help build infrastructure. And so I'm wondering if you see that model because of its origins and what it was focusing on not necessarily fitting into or applying to the broader enterprise of kind of state capacity enhancement. Yeah, I I think that's a really good question. Um, You know, I really think that the role of global development, philanthropy and foreign aid, really needs to shift. You know, we've thought before about, you know, global development as providing the goods or services, you know, whether, you know, in, in across different sectors. And I think if you, if you look at the overall financial flows to developing countries, 
global development is becoming a smaller and smaller slice of that. You know, the private sector is at least 10 times more and local government spending is at least three times more than that, right? Mm -hmm. So if you put it in perspective, we're never going to be able to deliver at scale. Mm -hmm. And so I see the purpose of global development really shifting to being the catalytic funding that allows us to experiment and take the risks that are actually hard both for private sector to take in the early days because there's not enough reward for the risk and for governments to take because they are on the hook for delivering services to their citizens and they can't really afford to experiment. And so I think there's a real unique role for global development to do those kinds of things. And, uh, and, And what we can do is experiment to show the government or demonstrate to the governments more cost-effective ways to do what they're doing. And, you know, who wouldn't want that? Um, You know, one really interesting experiment that I think is fascinating and certainly also a little controversial, but I I think something that we should do more of is in Liberia and the Partnership for Schools Liberia, where the Ministry of Education recognized that the the public school system in Liberia was just failing. Kids weren't getting educated. And, you know, Liberia has gone through so many years of civil war and then the Ebola crisis and kids were just not learning in school. And they, you know, the minister at the time was prescient enough to and humble enough to recognize that and ask for help. And so they set up a structure where they brought in eight other players, um, some private sector, some nonprofits, to take on some of the public schools and to see if they could deliver services better and, and educate kids better for the same price. Um, and so alongside that, an RCT was run. So they you know, rigorously evaluated how these other providers are doing and found that on average, um, the providers are doing like 50% better, and, and some were even doing 100% better. You get a whole extra year of education in the same year. Um, and so I think this is a fascinating experiment, right, because the government's actually saying, like, you know, we only have this much to spend. Liberia's not a rich country. They're looking at $50 a kid a year. Is, can anybody out there do better than us? Um, and, and when they can, then there's the potential to expand that program over time and provide better education for the same price um, for the citizens of Liberia. So we actually had um, Paul Skidmore, who is the chief executive of Rising Academies, one of the chains that oh, entered in Liberia earlier on in, in, in Displaced. Um, one thing I just want to come back to you is, I think what you said earlier on about how the whole purpose of, of, of development funding should be different, it should be catalytic, is interesting, because sometimes I tend to say that we should carve out a proportion of um, aid spending for innovation. You know, 10% or 5% of funding should go on R&D. What you're saying is actually much more ambitious. You're saying that fundamentally the role of... Uh, development aid should be that catalytic, innovative support. And while I would normally sort of say, great, because it's very self-serving of me to suggest that we should spend more money on innovation, um, if you take some of the ultra-low-income contexts or particularly humanitarian contexts, aid is just really, really important as a massive, basic um, support for services. And, you know, sure, many in many contexts, um, other flows of finance are more important. But in the ultra-low context, a large proportion of overall expenditure in that place is, is just aid. Yeah. And, and so here's how I'd break it down. So certainly for humanitarian aid, that is something that we will always need, you know, uh, philanthropic foreign aid resources for. And so I'd sort of set that aside. Those are sort of, um, you know, kind of unexpected circumstances, if you will. For other circumstances that are ongoing, the the question I would ask is look at the size of the need. You know, how many people are in these low-income countries or in these particular circumstances that need whatever it is, clean water, food, electricity, education, healthcare, or otherwise, um, and look at the philanthropic funds that are available 
And if the philanthropic funds that are available can cover those needs, great. Like, let's deliver that. Um, and and there, in some cases, I think that's true. So, like, if you look at the case of vaccines, there's been enough mobilization of international will that we are able to provide vaccines. And there's still a process by which governments take over that over time as they become able to. But but that's something that aid can do. But in other cases where aid, you know, yes, the countries are poor. If aid can only address less than 1% of the need, so say there's a billion people in extreme poverty, if we can only get to a million or 10 million of those people, that's a tiny, tiny slice. And I would ask the question, like, is it worth continuing to put, you know, as much as we can to get to that 1% or 0.1% um, because we are helping those people and, and they certainly need help? Or should we spend more of that money actually trying to figure out how are we going to get to the full scope of the need, right? And that's potentially through government, potentially through private sector, potentially through replication, potentially through just coming up with solutions, uh, you know, new inventions that will be far more cost effective so that you can get somewhere close to the scope of the need. And this is a model of aid that I think is actually kind of like a departure from a sense that uh, what it's doing is um, being redistributive, right? Like there's a lot of rich countries and they're rich for a reason historically. And part of the reason they're rich is because poor countries are poor, um, particularly if you look at like sub-Saharan Africa and a lot of colonization and a lot of kind of like mineral resource and labor extraction, um, that aid is not necessarily trying to catalyze their catalyze uh, better outcomes there, but that like aid is actually kind of like a historical reparation in a sense. And I'm wondering whether you give that kind of vision of aid any credence and how it maps on to what you're thinking about in terms of more of a catalytic model. Yeah, I mean, I think we certainly have a responsibility to the world, whether people in our own country or people in other countries who are suffering. I mean, I think just as human beings, we have that responsibility. Um, and so uh, that's something we should take seriously. And I would say on top of that, I think sometimes we – um, assuage that responsibility too easily by saying, okay, we pointed the fire hose here. We're going to do some good. We're going to help some people. Um, but I think we need to take greater responsibility to say, hey, we need to solve the problem, not just help some people and make ourselves feel better. And so if we're able to like solve the problem, like by all means, let's solve the problem. But if we're only putting Band-Aids on a small portion of the problem, I think we also have the responsibility to find some path forward. And, you know, a lot of times it's unknown. And that's part of what innovation is about is to step into that unknown and figure out how do we actually solve the problem so that we're not just putting Band-Aids on, you know, 1% of the people who need them. You talked, Amé, a little earlier about how some traditional large nonprofits aren't always the most um, innovative um, and that there's a, an advantage in the small startup. Um, I think you've also talked about how there are a growing number of hybrid organisational forms, um, you know, social enterprises, B Corps, venture philanthropy. Can you say a little bit about what it is about those, or well, A, define what all those words <laughs> mean? What are those? <laughs> Hello, are they? Um, they feel a like a, a brainstorm. <laughs> so, w- w- Perhaps define some of those, but also say what value they add. Yeah. So, you know, as I've gone out in the the process of writing my book, I interviewed people from over 200 different organizations. And, you know, the way I found these organizations were some certainly that I had worked with before, but others I I went to the smartest people I knew in the industry and say, who is doing the best work? Um, And I went to interview those guys. And what I found is that... You didn't come and talk to us, did you? I have talked to you guys. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And what I found is that... Um, the most exciting and impressive work that's happening 
a lot of it's happening at what I call this hybrid intersection. It's not pure nonprofits and it's not pure for-profit, but it's people who are somewhere in between sort of paving a, a third way, if you will. Um, and, and what's interesting about that is, and this is certainly makes more sense for the segment that is servable by the private sector versus things that are core government services, um, although I think there's some bleed through there. Um, but what's interesting is they're trying to bring together the best of both worlds, right? The, the kind of mission orientation of the nonprofit sphere, but with the kind of focus and the ability to scale of the private sector. Uh, and so I think some of the most exciting things are happening there. And what's interesting is that social enterprises, you know, which are you know generally startups for social good, um, sometimes are nonprofits and sometimes are for profits. And what's fascinating is they're getting so close together that you know, for example, in Africa, there are two organizations that work with smallholder farmers to increase their incomes: One Acre Fund and Babangona. Um, they look very similar from the surface on the outside. I know they have many details that are different in the model, but what's fascinating is with a very similar mission and somewhat similar models, one is a nonprofit and one's a for-profit, right? Mm -hmm. And so whether you're on one side or the other of that line, um, all these organizations are starting to find ways to bring elements of both to play. And part of what's, what I think many – I've heard from many organizations they found valuable is when they are selling their goods or services, even for a you know, kind of discounted price – it really drives the feedback loop, right? If you think about one of the challenges of innovation, one of the challenges of lean startup for nonprofits is that you have two customers at least. You know, in, in the business world, it's really easy. You build a product or service, you sell that product or service. If your customer doesn't want it and doesn't buy it, you know right away you're not on target. In the social sector, one of our challenges is we provide a good or service. If we give it away for free and people don't want it, it takes a while for us to figure that out and to figure out what they really want because it may be that our funders wanting us to provide that because they have some agenda um, or otherwise. And so what social enterprises have found really valuable is creating that feedback loop, even if it's at a discounted price. Um, they can tell whether people actually want what they're having to offer if people have to pay something for it um, versus like, oh, yeah, it's free. I'll just take it and then I'll never use it again. So I think there's uh, a lot of – I think there's a way to understand um, launching kind of hybrid models from the beginning that sounds easy. But there's a huge ecosystem of large nonprofits out there um, with thousands of staff and thousands of projects in the exact way that you're describing. Have you seen examples or models in which nonprofits actually move towards becoming hybrid? And what does that – what do those steps look like? How does that get carved out? Yeah, I have to think about a specific nonprofit that – I mean a lot of times it's built in the DNA because it's right. very hard to – to kind of change your model midstream. And, and part of that is like, especially in the global development sphere, the large nonprofits are, um, you know, so much on that grant treadmill that they don't have the flexibility to kind of invest in a new model. So what I've seen some of the larger nonprofits do is carve out like a lab or even spin out a, a separate organization. I know a few different, um, you know, where I was at Mercy Corps, we had a, uh, we have a uh, social ventures fund that mm -hmm. we're investing in, uh, you know, social startups, if you will. And so it's, it's sort of happening on the sidelines of some of the larger um, larger nonprofits. But I haven't seen any that I can think of that are transforming their, biz their wholesale business model. But one that I think is particularly interesting is uh, what some people would say is the largest NGO in the world, BRAC in Bangladesh, mm -hmm. um, they sort of started with a very entrepreneurial spirit from the start. And, but they are a large NGO, um, but they operate a little differently than most of the large NGOs. They're incredibly entrepreneurial. And as part of the, their 
um, you know, their whole suite of things that they offer, they have both, you know, grant-funded programs, but they also have a number of social enterprises. And a lot of those social enterprises were given rise from the work that they were doing that they saw opportunities where they could create businesses. So, you know, for example, you know, when they're working with uh, very poor women and helping them create livelihoods and doing things like giving them loans so they could buy a cow or chickens or whatever um, to be able to have an ongoing livelihood. Then they found, like, for example, the women who were getting cows were um, not able to sell the milk for very much money because they didn't have refrigeration. They could only sell in the local markets, and they were getting far below market value for the milk that they were producing. And so their incomes weren't increasing as much. And so they just sort of said, like, looked at that problem and said, hey, let's fix this and created a dairy business mm -hmm. and basically set up refrigeration sites across the country that women could bring the milk and get it refrigerated, transported it to the city, and then process the milk into um, products like, you know, cheese and yogurt and, and pasteurized milk that they could sell in the cities. And it's become both a profitable business for BRAC, um, as well as for, you know, these these women that they were trying to help who are living in extreme poverty now have a much more reliable and higher income stream as a result. So I think these things can be very compatible. And you mentioned that these hybrid organisations are combining the mission-driven social sector ethos with um, the focus and ability to scale of the private sector. I think I get the sort of focus element, but just tell me a bit more about the the inherent ability to scale that you think a private sector model has? Well, certainly when you have um, revenues coming back in um, because people are paying for goods and services, you can then plow those revenues back into um, investing in your infrastructure, investing in reaching out to new markets, investing in developing your product, right? So you're not reliant on just going back for grant money. Uh, and so by having that sort of business model like these off-grid electric companies that I was talking about... Um, but can a non-profit essentially run the same business model and use the surplus to reinvest in, in services? They could. And this is where like the nonprofit and for-profit models are coming together, right? And, and meeting at that line just in between where, you know, one acre fund, even though it's a nonprofit, is, you know, 80, 85% um, generating revenues to recover their costs so they can serve a lot more people as a result. Um, and, and I would say when you cross over the threshold where you actually have profits um, versus just cost recovery, which is how nonprofits tend to think about it, then you're able to then invest in growth much more. Um, Cost recovery is a great way to be more efficient, but profits are really required to drive growth. And, and it is a fine line between the two, but that's where the um, I'm seeing more and more entities operating in that hybrid space. Do those ten have you seen examples outside of the income generating space? Um, because that to me actually seems like maybe the most feasible one, the one that uh, makes the most sense where there's gonna be surplus. And and I ask that question because I think there's a lot of people who enter the nonprofit world who do who philosophically believe that we shouldn't be making profit, right? That this is the right thing to do, that this is why we're doing it. Um, so even if there's not necessarily the uh, feedback that you get through a price mechanism, it's still more important. And, in, and I think there's spaces where that feels more right. So I think about health um, in particular as, as an area where it's not quite as clear to me that um, there's those same types of models. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious to see if outside of the income space, you've seen things that um, are in that same model that are just as kind of hitting. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and like I said earlier, I, I don't at all believe that a for-profit model is the only way to scale. I think it's only appropriate for certain types of interventions. Um, you know, another example that's more in the sort of health government services stamp, uh, uh, space is um, deworming. So deworming pills, um, you know, have been showing, shown mm-hmm. through RCTs, academic studies, to improve kids' ability to study and their overall productivity. Um, they're like 50 cents for a pill, but, you know, kids weren't getting them. And even though we had these kinds of, we have many studies like this that show different things would be better, you know, governments aren't necessarily picking them up. So, you know, Evidence Action is a nonprofit that took this notion and these studies and said, hey, we're going to start working with governments to try to integrate this into the school system. It's not something that parents are willing to pay the 50 cents for or, mm-hmm. you know, or that setting up a separate uh, entity to distribute the pills is, is very cost effective. And so they've been working with governments to integrate this with the school system so that, um, you know, you already have the infrastructure of the school systems. The kids are coming to a common place. You have teachers who are there. And so, you know, they've been, for example, working with the government of India to integrate, you know, having a national deworming day. And I think over the last year, we're able to get pills to, I think, 190 million kids that way. Um, and and this is, you know, through the government system. It's something that's leveraging the government infrastructure as well as leveraging government finances to show the government that this is a cost-effective way for them to deliver better services to their, their populations. To kind of shift a little bit and come back to kind of like the lineage of these innovation models, where doing this interview at a moment where I think a lot of Silicon Valley is coming under a bit more of a skeptical eye. Um, some of the tech firms that started out small and are now big, the Facebooks, the Googles, um, for a lot of the platforms they've created generating adverse effects, generating harms, whether it's in elections, misinformation, causing violence. And I would love to hear your reflections on whether what's happening now um, in Silicon Valley that was essentially the product of a lot of the innovation culture that you're uh, um, ascribing or advocating for tells us something about the way that it should be integrated into global development. Yeah, I, I do think that's true. Um, you know, one of the differences between the Lean Startup book and the book I just wrote, Lean Impact, is that the Lean Startup talks about two core hypotheses or assumptions that you need to test for for any solution. So um, it, Eric calls it the value hypothesis and the growth hypothesis. And the value hypothesis essentially is this something people want and demand and come back for and tell their friends about is do they really see value in what you have to offer and not just sort of are willing to take it. Um, the growth hypothesis is, okay, so if people people wanted it, do you have a some sort of underlying business model to be able to scale, to get to the people who could benefit from it? Um, and, and that's really how, you know, Silicon Valley and a lot of the business innovations have been, have been driven. Uh, in Lean Impact, I introduce a third hypothesis, which is called the impact hypothesis. And certainly in the social good space, we don't, we aren't satisfied with just value and growth, we really need to show the social benefit or impact. Um, And so the impact hypothesis, I would say, is um, something that we equally need to test and iterate and maximize, um, not just show that we are, you know, pointing in the right direction, but that we're generating as much impact as possible for the resources that we have. It's the most cost-effective impact possible. And so I think that's really applicable for the social sector. It's really what we're about because we're mission first. But I would also say that what we're seeing in the business world is more and more of a move to companies who um, 
are triple bottom line companies or even companies who don't call themselves that, who are more, more and more called because of their customers, because of their investors, because of their employees to be more responsible to the world. And this is where um, Ravi was mentioning earlier, the B Corp, um, the benefit corporation, we're seeing larger and larger companies um, organize themselves as B Corps to recognize that sort of the third pillar of their responsibility um, as a company. Um, and, and I'm hoping that over time, we're going to see that become the norm where um, value, growth, and impact are not only a, a matter for the nonprofit world, but for any company that you need to maximize and balance across the value, growth, and your impact to society. Can I come to the question of the sort of the ethics of doing lean impact? Because one of the things that I think is difficult about transposing the sort of Silicon, model, Silicon Valley model over to um, development and humanitarian work is the idea that you can sort of move fast and break things. Yes. Um, because you know, if you're working on global health and Move fast and do no harm. At the Airbell Center, we had some early scarring lessons in this direction. I remember we were doing some work in Liberia to try and look at whether we can increase access to immunization amongst those who've, who weren't currently um, being captured. And we were trying to test whether um, you could actually, instead of having to go and reach the remote villages, could you get people to come to a, a central clinic if you created a reward that was strong enough? So one thing we decided to prototype was a lottery. So we announced uh, on the radio that we were running a lottery with a few prizes. Unfortunately, the radio announcer got the number of prizes wrong and announced <laughs> there'd be 150 prizes rather than 10 prizes. Uh -huh. Now, you know, Small mistake, as you can imagine, hundreds of people suddenly arrived. Actually did show, funnily enough, that potentially if you do create a prize and people will travel many, many miles to get there. But as you can imagine, that could have been a very, very dangerous situation. We could have had a riot on our hands uh, and we had to move very quickly and nimbly to try and um, you know, construct lots of prizes on the fly. But that's an example where that sort of prototyping mentality is challenging. And our normal research has lots of formal ethics review. And we've now tried to introduce some quick and dirty ethical review process so that we can still move quickly, but also actually weigh the costs and benefits. And I'm just interested in your guidance on, on that ethical question, because it, it is something that does... Um, impacts our work quite considerably. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important question. Um, you know, one thing I would say, though, is in your particular example of the 10 versus 150, I think that's a mistake that could be made, whether or not you're experimenting or you're actually yeah, rolling out a program point. and somebody makes a mistake like that. Um, but but I think... Yeah, it's we're, a, we're constantly prototyping and experimenting. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it's a really important question, and this is one of the reasons that it's harder to innovate in the social sector, because we, you know, are working with people generally who are quite vulnerable. We can't irresponsibly experiment with their lives. Um, and I'd start by saying this is one reason why it's important to start small. If you're experimenting with five or ten people, you can watch much more closely and be, pay, you know, be much more thoughtful about making sure you're doing no harm rather than if you're doing it with thousands of people, right? You can just attend to things much more carefully. There's a, um, a social enterprise in the United States called uh, Watsi that uh, is a crowdfunding site to help crowdfund people's medical procedures, surgeries in developing countries. And when they first started, you know, they were experimenting. They're like, you know, we're going to go to the these people who are vulnerable and ask them for their stories and take up their time and put up their stories and see if people will crowdfund them. And so they recognized that this was, you know, they were, you know, not necessarily putting people's lives at risk, but, you know, really asking a lot of people in a vulnerable situation. And so um, what they decided to do was just put up the, the profiles of three different patients and they 
set aside enough of their own money, their own savings to say, hey, if, if this completely fails, we're still going to fund these patients, right? Because it's only three. We can do that. So it's like $15,000 or something. We're going to set aside the money. And then we're going to try to crowdfund and see if we can get people to do it. Um, it turned out they were successful. But if they weren't successful, they were still going to make those people whole. And again, if you start small, that's something that you can do. Um, and so I think we do need to experiment responsibly. On the other side of that, though, I would say it's equally irresponsible not to experiment, right? If you think about, you know, all the different, you know, vaccines we had, somebody had to get the first vaccine. And we want to be very careful about the person who gets the first dose of a vaccine. We do lots of tests to inch up to that to make sure it's going to be safe. Um, but somebody has to get the first vaccine. If we never did that, you know, millions of other people would never get it and would never have the benefits of that. So um, it's important to be very thoughtful and careful about experimenting. But I think we shouldn't underestimate the downside of not experimenting, that we're giving people subpar solutions, subpar um, interventions because we haven't tried to do better. So one other flip to that that I think about is the discussion around uh, ethics and humanitarian response has really, really focused heavily on innovation. And I think it should. Like, I think, like, innovation needs to ask, like, be absolutely ethical um, at every step of the way and have processes demonstrated for. But the thing that I always find surprising is that it seems like an asymmetric application of ethics. It seems like a lot of the rest of what humanitarians do have actually never had that same framework applied systematically and rigorously. So it's an assumption that everything we're doing has already been tested uh, is known to be, you know, positive, is known to calm no adverse effects. And we actually know that it doesn't. Like, we've had randomized controlled trials and evidence come out over the past 10, 15 years that, like, it has an effect. I think about, like, one specific example is community um, um, development uh, and reconstruction. So CDD or CDR programs that were very big. And there was evidence that came out in uh, Indonesia, if I'm remembering correctly, by um, a group, Felter and all, uh, who were doing the study that showed that uh, providing these injections of cash into communities actually increased the violence that was happening within them because they became targets of non-state actors who, because it was a you know pretty much a conflict zone, and we wouldn't have known that otherwise. And it's one of the very few times when like we actually applied like an ethical framework to experimenting thoughtfully in humanitarian response or in these type of development, and the rest of the time we don't. And so, while I think that the conversation around ethics and innovation is absolutely appropriate. I just kind of also wonder what it's masking. I think like we need to be systematic across all pieces. And I, I, I get concerned that there's a misfocus on innovation rather than a broader conversation. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely the case. I mean, wh why do we assume that what we're doing today is the thing that works versus, you know, or, or that it's even working at all um, versus that the innovation is the thing that's risky? And, and part of innovation is also not just starting small and being responsible but these are not things that should just come out of thin air. We're just going to randomly come up with something. You know, the process you mentioned earlier about human-centered design is very core to, you know, how I would think about approaching the value proposition. Human-centered design is very much synergistic and compatible with lean impact, and it goes deep into the value proposition of how do we understand what people's problems are, what their needs are, get proximate to the customers that we have, so that the things that we're designing and testing with them are not completely out of the blue, but really responsive to what we're hearing. You know, just in the humanitarian context, to give another example of where we can sometimes be off base is, you know, in, in the course of my interviews, I talked to a few different people who talked about um, humanitarian emergency contexts where we do have a 
you know, we do have what we think of as a best practice plan. We come in with a set of interventions, but sometimes they're just not appropriate for the context, right? So, um, you know, in, in the particular examples I, I uh, heard people talk about, it's like, you know, humanitarian context, we come in, we're going to, we have our malaria pills, we have our mosquito nets, we have these things, but there's no malaria in the region. Or we're giving, or we're, gi- or yeah. we're giving people food because that's what we do. But what the farmers really want is for us to clear their rice field so that they can plant, so they'll have food when the humanitarians leave, right? And so just because we had some prepackaged way of doing things, it's always the way we've done things, doesn't mean it's actually the best way to do things. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so mad that we have to pretend that we're omniscient uh, with perfect foresight when we're writing our grant proposal. Proposals. And people on the other side probably know that that's a fiction, but they know that that's what they've got to do to get their bosses to sign off on the money. It is mad. Can I come back to at the beginning? You talked about well, I talked about you being frustrated, and why that's why you wrote this book. If you, what are the behaviours that you want to shift in governments, in donors, in in NGOs? If you could sort of crystallise it in three or four behaviours that you'd really like to see shift that would make you happy and not uh-huh. frustrated. Yeah, um, you know, I'll just frame that in terms of the three principles I talk about in the book, uh, Lean Impact, which is think big, start small, and relentlessly seek impact, right? And so think big is just like we, we tend to, in the um, global development context, think about uh, plan in terms of constraints. Like we have this much money, we have this much resources, there's a grant of this size and scope, so what can we do with that? Um, and I think what we need to shift our thinking about is to plan with respect to the needs, not in, not the existing constraints. And that causes us to think a little bit differently. And I think you know both funders and um, implementers and governments should be thinking about what's the, what's the scope of the need and how do we get there? Um, so that's first. Uh, the second thing is the start small piece, which is really about thinking about how do we come how do we become much more agile and speed up our pace of learning? Um, a lot of it is about building, you know, it's the unsexy stuff. You know, at USAID, you know, everybody wanted to come up with the big innovations. Like, I was fascinated by procurement because I think that's like, you know, the, the processes that allow you or prevent you from being more agile and more nimble and learning more quickly um, are absolutely essential to driving innovation. And then the final thing is relentlessly pursue impact, right? That, And this is different depending on what seat you're sitting in. But I, I find so many things in this space where we're making decisions not based on what's going to give us the most cost-effective impact, but it's what's going to most likely position us for a grant, what's going to most likely further my organization, what's going to, you know, give me a platform to talk about my new favorite blockchain technology or something like that versus what's the thing that's actually driving the most cost-effective impact on the ground. And Mei Chang, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We're back next week with our very last episode of the season, but we're going out with a bang. It's a really great conversation with the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Viet Tan Nguyen. So you'll really want to come back for that. In fact, we've got a little clip of it already. Refugees... Uh, you know, we, we talk about them as if they're they're immigrants, but they're not. I mean, and one of the ways they're not is that refugees are unwanted where they come from and, and typically unwanted where they go to. And so people who come here as refugees know very soon that they shouldn't call themselves refugees. Check out his work. Come back and listen to the episode. A huge thank you to our production team at Vox Media, which includes associate producer Jelani Carter and our senior producer, Golda Arthur, who I think is out right now bringing us momos. And at Vox Media, Nishat Kerwa is our executive producer of audio. 
And at the RC, we'd like to thank a load of people. Alex Bandea, Ben Moskovitz and Catherine Long have all been fantastic throughout the season, particularly big thanks to Catherine who you heard at the start of the show. Thank you so much and we'll see you next week.